Welcome to the Sex Ed with DB podcast, brought to you by O School. Sex Ed with DB is an intersectional, feminist, Bay Area-based podcast for folks who want to hear real stories from underrepresented voices as we try to revolutionize the way we talk about sex. Just talk about sex every single day. I used to hump the shit out of everything. I think everybody does. I'm like, if you'd like me to start procreating tough shit, because I'm not gonna. You can't have education, you can't have contraception, but you can't have an abortion. We're still on the, the shit end of, of the stick for a lot of medical interventions that would make our bodies function better. And now it's all queer and all messy and all bodies and really great and fantastic. Everyone gets a vibrator! I'm DB, aka Danielle Bezalel, and I'll be your host. Looking in the mirror and loving what you see all the time is no easy task, but we're here to tell you that you're incredible just the way you are. In today's episode, we'll be talking about all the feels when it comes to the concept of body image. Summer's almost here, and everybody's talking about getting beach body ready. Here at O School, however, we know all that requires is taking your body to a beach, and voila, you've got a beach body just like that. If you relate, And if body image, beauty standards, body positivity, and self-love are all things you could use more of in your life, visit www.o.school for our expert-led live streams about body politics. If the future of your fertility is causing you stress, tell your eggs to chill out, literally. Extend Fertility is a premier egg freezing practice dedicated to preserving your fertility options. Have questions? Schedule a call at extendfertility.com. I started this work because, well, it started with my own history of hating my body starting at the age of 12. This is Connie Sobchak, co-founder of The Body Positive, a nonprofit organization that teaches people to value their unique identities and become liberated from self-hatred so that they can optimize their energy and intellect to make positive changes in their own lives communities, and beyond. Getting an eating disorder by the time I was 15 because of different situations. One was that all of my friends were uh, body hating, and one of my friends happened to teach me how to become bulimic. Um, And then at home, my dad was very obsessed about body size. My mom was very cool about her own body and never talked to us about ours, but my dad was um, really on the case of my sister, who was a very big person, uh, really tall and just big. And um, so in her teen years, I, when I look back, I see that she was probably binge eating because she had a lot of shame about who she was. And this was in the um, 1970s. So no information at all about eating problems and no conversations about that. Um, And so Uh, Stephanie also became, my sister became bulimic and we really bonded over our body hatred. Um, She also got breast implants when she was in her early 20s because she thought something was wrong with the shape of her nipples. She thought they were deformed and so she went to have surgery 
And the doctor said, well, while you're here, we can make your breasts bigger. So they put in implants, one of them hardened, and then two doctors took their four hands and crushed the implant in her breast and uh, silicone leaked through her bloodstream. And so she developed um, an autoimmune disease, lupus. And because it was never discovered and treated, uh, she really struggled with a lot of pain and subsequently then got addicted to pain pills and um, just continued to hate her body, continued to have an eating disorder throughout her whole life and died when she was 36. So I was 21 when I got over my eating disorder. I busted through on my own. There wasn't even a word for bulimia at the time. I knew that I was at a point where I didn't really want to live because of the struggle and um, but had really interesting things happen around dreams and realizing that I was killing myself and I woke up and said, oh my God, I have to live, I want to live and just grabbed onto that life force, that little tiny spark of life force and pulled myself out, mostly by changing my community, changing my partner, um, really being around people who loved me and weren't talking about their own bodies. We were just living. And it was the first time in my life that I was around people that weren't obsessed with the size of their thighs or whatever. And um, so that really helped me a lot. And so fast forward um, 10 years from there, I was 31 and I had given birth to my daughter, Carmen. And um, Stephanie died when Carmen was a year old. And that's when I just made the choice to change the world. So that was the beginning for me. Um, I had this vision of reaching out to teens uh, first. It was my first audience idea because I felt like if when they grow up, if they choose to have children or have children in their lives, that they can, if they do their own work and I can plant seeds, that there can be a different way that they can grow up and evolution can happen because they won't be passing this on to another generation. And then I met Elizabeth Scott, who's this really phenomenal social worker, and she and I joined forces to start the peer leadership program. And so that combined with videos that we were making to um, get into schools and all over the world, actually, um, that's kind of that was the beginnings of the body positive in 1996. It all kind of came together. Wow. Thank you so, so much for sharing all that. Wow. I like... I needed you as a kid. Um, as too. <laughs> I, yeah, exactly. You needed you too. But yeah. it's just like, it's just so, I'm just so excited that the world has you and has your programs and has the ability to participate in this body positive movement, I think, that you're creating and you have been creating for a long time. Um, and I just want to, you know, say the obvious, which is there are so many people who struggle with their bodies as kids. And I I really, really hope that through things like interviews like this and conversations and programs and normalizing people having, like you said, unique and different bodies, we could really we could really change the way that people see themselves. We can. And when we do that, we can change the world. And I just did an interview on Monday and had this incredible conversation. And I was asked, why is this important? And why is it important for young people? In this case, it was young women. Our work is for all genders. But why is it important to inhabit our bodies and to make peace with them? And 
what I know and what I've seen in all, all the people that have been through our program and worked with us and stayed in touch, and especially the young people, that they are doing the work to make change. I mean, this is what we need because we need everybody focused fully their attention on what has to happen. And it doesn't mean everybody has to go out and, you know, pick up the sword and go out and fight. Right. It's, it's that how we live our lives and just in day-to-day interactions with others and this peace, it's peace. And mm-hmm. we are spreading peace if we have peace with our bodies. Yes, absolutely. And I want to kind of back up a little bit to talk about, you know, you as a kid and I think me as a kid, I think we receive probably different messages in the media and in, you know, in movies and in books and in magazines and on TV. Um, And what do you think? And regardless of if those are different, I think that they gave the same message, which was your body sucks. Um, It just was different people that were role models. Exactly. Quite as much media, probably. I mean, I had television and magazines. Right. It's just different commercials, you know, it's just like, it's just 20 years apart. But I think I'm just wondering, what do you think um, are the most damaging forces in our in our American society um, when it comes to harming individuals and specifically kids' image of their own body? Good question. So here's one of the things that I think is really important to think about. We have media that is incredibly damaging. So bombarding children with imagery, sexualization, obviously, of girls um, and boys now. I mean, I think of the the movies for young people and how it's really changed. And so now the boys are always having their shirts off and they have to have perfect muscles. And um, so there's this sexualization of the boys as well um, and objectification of their bodies. So that constant, I mean, and so much media that they're exposed to. So that's, that is really damaging. I mean, and, and but the thing that I think of a lot is that everybody wants to just blame the media. But what I see with the kids that I work with is that the most damaging messages come from the people that they know. And so kids can be bullies. Kids and grown-ups mm-hmm. are mean and say awful things. And parents say terrible things to their children. I think of what my dad said to my sister. You know, are you sure you want to eat that, Stephanie? Do you know how many calories are in that, Stephanie? Right. And I mean, I've worked with enough children who tell me the messages that they get from their parents. And some get really beautiful messages. But some also get mixed messages. Oh, you're beautiful and you're wonderful, but don't eat that. You don't want to get fat. Exactly. You know? And so these are the ones that are actually the most harmful. I think that for middle school and elementary school children, all of the media stuff, if it's not deconstructed, is really harmful because they don't understand what's being done to them. By the time someone is in high school, it's still damaging, but they also have the intellectual capacity to say, I do know that someone is making money off doing this. So they understand advertising a little bit more, but the young ones don't get what advertising is. And so they just take it, um, as you know, as it is, and they're just soaking everything in, um, just straight in. So, um, I think it's really important to do media literacy with children and, and deconstruct in a fun way, not so like, this is terrible. Don't ever, you know, look at that. Um, like, 
I could, my mom wouldn't let us have Barbies. So mm. I still got an eating disorder. Um, she wasn't doing it for that reason, but she didn't like it. And I think that's great. When my daughter, someone gave, I didn't buy her one, but someone gave her a couple of them. And so we just had a little fun moment where I was like, okay, so I just need to say to you, you know, this doll makes some girls think that they're supposed to look like this, but let's take a look at her. First of all, she's on tiptoes all the time now, and then she's got so much hair that if she were on tiptoes and had that much hair and that tiny waist, you know, she would fall over backwards. And I was doing this, I was demonstrating this, so you know, looking as goofy as possible. Right. And now go play with her. Now the thing that she wanted to do was change the clothes. So she used her for a little while and then she was done, but not making things bad. I think that that is. Um, something that happened for me that um, didn't help was um, Barbie was evil. Um, we had Johnny West. So we had the whole farm <laughs> thing going on, which was great. I had a great time with Johnny West, but um, and the whole farm and the horses and everything. Um, so, so the thing is to, to deconstruct media in ways like also the Disney movies, not making them evil and bad because then they're going to be more appealing. But, um, like the little mermaid has an eating disorder. She is anorexic and she's giving up her voice mm -hmm. for the man. That's not okay. Okay. But now let's watch the movie together and, you know, sing the songs. And so, right. Things, like a disclaimer. Yeah. And so Carmen didn't absorb those things and think that she had to be like that. But my daughter is Carmen and, mm -hmm. uh, she got to, to partake in media in, you know, there was, there were limits, of course. Um, but I was there with her and we were talking the whole way through whether she wanted to or not. I mean, she, mm -hmm. after a while, she's like, I know mom, you know, but you know, I'd say, well, I'm still going to say it. And now let's watch the movie. Um, right. And so media, yeah, media is rough. And yet the friend messages, I mean, I know one of the most damaging messages for me, even though I thought I was supposed to look like Farrah Fawcett and all the Charlie's Angels, the original one, um, was my dad, my best friend's dad telling me when I was 17 years old, Connie, your ass is getting really fat. You know, what's wrong with you? And oh my that's God. My disorder really kicked in. That summer was when I really, you know, went headlong into bulimia. So that was more damaging than the media that I was looking at. Absolutely. And I just think back to, you know, when I was a kid and I feel like every kid probably, if they don't have parents who, and family members who really are constantly affirming them, I feel like it's really easy for most kids, if not all, to have some sort of hard relationship with their body at some point in their childhood. And for me, I remember these moments of, you know, I was always an athlete growing up and I was always, you know, would go to the doctor and I was always like 15 pounds, like above, you know, the chart where it was like, oh, here's normal. And then you're mm -hmm. like 15 pounds overweight. And that was just like constantly where I existed. Um, and I just felt so shitty about my own body all the time. I remember very specific moments where I would continue to try to exercise in my room and like really oh. try to do, you know, ab workouts. And, you know, I, I don't, I wouldn't classify me as having an eating disorder per se, but I definitely think that I could have had a much better relationship with my body. Well, and you thought something was wrong with you and that's right. the problem. I mean, no child should think something is wrong with their body. I mean, that's what I want to change the world so that no child ever thinks something is wrong with them. Right. Uh, 
You know, and the thing is, I mean, I just feel so sad. I like want to go and run in that room to the doctor's office where you were as a child and say, you know, look, you're staying at the same place in the chart. That's what you're supposed to do. And who are your ancestors? Let's take a look at who you come from. And, Mm -hmm. you know, let's talk about the people that made this body that you have and what a powerful, wonderful, amazing thing it is. And, you know, get in the face of the doctor and say, shut up because I know. Thank you, Connie. You're welcome. Let's go. But we'll go back and do the healing now. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of like, okay, why do I have this certain relationship I do have to my body? And this is for everybody who's listening to this episode right now. Really, I encourage everyone, especially, you know, given that everyone has such a different relationship with your body. If there's ever been a time where you felt, you know, a disconnect between who you are and what you look like, really think back. Um, I feel like that's really ne- – unless obviously there are people who may not want to because it's too traumatic. Like do you experience that actually, Connie, in your in your classes that you facilitate with yes, the body absolutely. positive? Yeah, there are people who have severe body trauma. And so when we do our, our trainings, this is something that's really important to acknowledge. And even when we do the very, very best that we can to acknowledge this and help people step away from some of the activities we do, there are times for certain people who their stuff is is a lot. And so so we, we try and have um, self-care spaces and allow people to step away when they need to. Um, and then we have conversations about it. At our last training in Los Angeles in February, it was really fascinating because I did this meditation taking people from birth to death in their bodies. And one woman afterwards said that was, I wish I'd, she said it was an incredible meditation, but I wish I'd known in advance because I have severe, um, birth trauma and, um, you know, womb trauma. And so, um, if I'd known, um, you know, then I would have been prepared or could have stepped away. She said, that said, I'm really glad that I did this because it was really powerful to, to be in my body throughout this whole lifespan, um, and see that my body is my friend. So, so I mean, it's intense, you know, it's, this is an intense topic that we're, we're taking on with people. And we have learned a lot as we've done this. And one of the things that we teach in our um, model, that one of the competencies of the five is practice intuitive self-care, and that's living through trial and error. We don't know, re- I mean, the best way to live is through trial and error. We try things and we gather information and then we do analysis and then some things work and some things don't. And then third competency is um, cultivate self-love. So if we don't beat ourselves up when we make quote unquote mistakes, then we learn. And so, you know, as we're role modeling in our teaching, what we're giving to people, which is to be human means to to make errors, to fall down, to not get things right all the time. And then role modeling self-love of like, wow, you know, first of all, thank you for your feedback and let's have a conversation. Um, but we can do that within ourselves as well. So in, in my self-care practice, I can step in and say, oh, that worked, that didn't work. And this is what I you know, want more of and this is what I want less of. And so this deep listening process to the body, but that's a loopy way to say yes. Some people have um, that that people need support, and so if 
uh, to anyone listening, if you have body trauma and if you start trying to um, change your relationship with your body and lots of big stuff comes up, this is, you deserve to get help. I mean, right. this is where And a, it's normal. It's completely oh, normal. Completely. There, yeah. I mean, it's all normal. That's the thing. I mean, yeah. Anything and, that's going on is, yeah. or is normal. Yeah. We, we started the place of having a human body. I mean, to, I think of the, I watch the squirrels a lot. They talk about this a lot, the squirrels, and they just do their thing. I mean, in my backyard and <laughs> I watch them and they're just fascinated by them and they're like little squirrel highways and they're all doing their thing and spring comes and, you know, and they're all fornicating and, you know, winter comes and they just get very, very still. They get very big, um, fall, fall, they're scrambling for their food, you know, to puff up and get, you know, warm for the winter. Um, so we have these human brains that, get in the way of our self-care because we are, we stop listening to our instincts and we stop listening to what we know because the brain, um, has been, um, trained by others, unfortunately, to mm -hmm. discount what we know. I hear parents so many times say, Oh, you don't think that to their children or you don't that you don't feel that. Uh, yes, they do. Actually. Right. Do think they do feel that they are experiencing something? Don't take that away, um, because that takes away from that listening to the body. I would love to hear a little bit about, or a little bit more, kind of like advice, kind of stuff to people who, obviously, not obviously. Maybe there are listeners who have not struggled, but I'll speak for myself. As I've struggled with my body growing up, I would just love to hear some more advice for for folks to start on their journey or continue their journey, um, to start loving the body that they're in. Mm, yes. The best way to start the process or continue the journey of loving your body and having a more peaceful relationship with food and movement is to, I think the first step is just to honor that this body gives you life. You are here on the planet. There's no you and your body. There's no brain separate from the body. There's no spirit separate. It's, it's all one. We are here because of this body. And when we reject our bodies, we are taking away the home for the spirit. So the, my, the name of my book is Embody, and it means to provide a spirit with a physical form. Okay, so starting there, this body gives me life. This body comes from this long line of ancestors that all go back to the first human being. So all of these people came together, procreated, thrived through harsh times. They made it. So all of our ancestors made it, right, to give me, to give you this body. So I honor my entire line of people by honoring my body. So I think that that's a really wonderful place. And that helps so many people that we work with just to see like, oh, wow. So if I'm trashing my body, I'm trashing this whole line of ancestors who gave me this body and who were powerful people that made it, whether even, you know, even if you have heart disease, whatever it is, you know, we made it, we got here, we're here. So, and then the next step is 
what do you want from life? Do you want to spend your time obsessing about the little details about your body? Do you want to be joyful with food? Do you want to be able to be free? Because freedom means having an acceptance of what is. This is my body. I am now living in an aging body. I am at a point where most of my generation is starting to cut themselves up and you know, inject themselves with things and hate their bodies because their skin is changing and things are happening. So I have a choice right now. I could do that. That's a choice I could make. Or I can choose to say my body has been walking this earth for 57 years. So I can do the work and it's not easy because of the pressures in this society, but to wake up in the morning and search for my beauty. So I have, I can search for my beauty. I can search for my flaws. So there really is a choice that needs to be made every day to say, I would like to be free. I would like to live. And from there, the tips and tools would be I think my book Embody is a really great place to start. Um, <laughs> I think these courses that we have are so beautiful. Yes. At our, the Body Positive Institute. Um, it's just like getting to hang out with Elizabeth and me and other people who are part of the, the work who have been um, influenced by it. And we have worksheets that people can do. Um, there's so many other books and different people who are doing wonderful things. Um, there's just, yeah, there's so many people right now. Start finding the books. Find the, like for Sonia Renee Taylor has a new book out, mm. The Body is Not an Apology. Yes. And, um, there's books. Um, Rebecca Scritchfield has a book called Body Kindness. So that's very, she's a dietitian. It's very much specifically about making peace with food and honoring size diversity. Those are just two. Linda Bacon's book, Health at Every Size and Body Respect. Those are books to really learn the science about why we come in different shapes and sizes. So start doing the research to learn about the fact that we come in different shapes and sizes naturally. And then to look around and look at culture and to realize that if you hate your body, somebody's profiting. And mm -hmm. that this is a, you know, we've been sold a whole bill of goods here to make us hate our bodies because then capitalism thrives. So if I don't like myself, I'm going to spend money on trying to change myself all over the place. And what, what happens? I, I become a, a conscious consumer when I can say, no, thank you. I love myself. And so like I go in the grocery store and I cover up the magazines that have, you know, the diet stuff and, you know, right. this as much weight. And I just cover them up with food or political magazines and, and make a statement about, I don't harm property, but I just, I'm not willing to spend my money in places where someone's trying to make me feel bad about myself. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Yes, Connie. Right. Um, you, <laughs> and then join yes. community. Be with people who want to talk about things other than the calories or the points that they're eating. I have a friend. She was just telling me a while ago how at her lunchroom at her school, she can't even go eat with the teachers because everybody's just counting points and talking about points and talking about their diets. And one of her friends said, why don't you come and eat in the lunchroom? And she said, because I don't want to have that conversation and I want to have a peaceful meal. It's It's getting a little bit boring. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the other reasons I started this work was I just got sick and tired of being in women's restrooms and having everybody picking at themselves and, and hating on themselves in the mirror and talking about, Oh, no, you're pretty. I'm not you're this, right? No, you're 
you know, it's just like, shut the fuck up. Yeah. I mean, really, that's what I want to say. Like everybody shut up. Now let's start over. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about food and the beautiful meals. Let's talk about movement or, you know, yoga class, whatever it is that you mm-hmm. like to do or running through the hills or whatever it is. Let's talk about trying to figure out ways to get people who don't have access to food, food. Um, let's really talk about the real issues. So let's honor that we have the body to be able to do all this stuff and to love each other. San Francisco Pole and Dance is not just a pole dance studio. It's a feminist utopia and a space to celebrate feminist empowerment. Located at 8th and Folsom in San Francisco's Soma District, San Francisco Pole and Dance offers over 45 classes a week in pole dancing, aerial silks, aerial lira, gymnastics, handstands, and flexibility training. Here, you'll get the best in pole dance training along with the support of a community filled with bad bitches. Go to www.sfpolandance.com to sign up for a class. Use promo code SEXEDWITHDB to get 20% off your first purchase. I am not a Bay Area native. I was born and raised in Columbia, South Carolina. This is Q Wilson. Q is a self-identified queer, gender-independent, polyamorous kink and leather boy. You can catch Q on O-School for live streams on dating, hooking up, and anything under the sex ed sun. Oldest of four kids, I grew up with abstinence-only sex education, mm. which never- The best kind. The best kind. It totally <laughs> stopped people from getting pregnant <laughs> all the time. No STIs, no pregnancy, abstinence-only is the way. The way to go. I'm lying and making all kinds of faces. Uh, so I came out in that sort of culture of being Southern. I was raised with manners and these sorts of things, and they kind of all- that part carries with me like all of our childhood does with when we move forward and grow. Um, I came out when I was 18 and just kind of blazed a trail of just like, whatever. Um, just I knew immediately when I came out that I wanted to be an advocate, that I was never going to be the quiet kid. Like it was never an issue for me. So um, the reason I wanted to do that was because I knew that there were other people in the world who would never be able to fully st- stand in that and say that I am gay and da 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 and especially living in South Carolina where you could still lose children and home, all kinds of things. So right. I felt like it was um, important for me as a person of color and recognizing that I was gay that I actually went out and did things with that, that I actually went out and lent my voice to the conversation, help people understand when I could, um, learning to accept that uh, some people only want to fight with you. Is a, is a thing. And then you got to go, no, I'm not going to fight with you. And if you could like, I know this is impossible because we're like dynamic, really different people. But if you could talk about specifically like your identities, like how would you describe yourself in terms of your identities? Well, thank you for asking. <laughs> I am a multitude of things. Um, queer, poly, non-monogamous. I think there is a difference between the two. Non-monogamous to me um, is more just physical. Polyamorous actually means having my heart involved. So I'm actively, ethically poly and non-monogamous. Um, I identify as a leather boy. I am a service-oriented human. I enjoy providing service for people, whether they recognize it's what I'm doing or not. Um, it makes me happy to make people's lives easier. Um, 
wow, what else? What else would I say? Uh, I'm a sex worker. Huh, that's one of the things that's kind of important to point out. Uh, and I'm not the average, I'm not the typical person that I think people think of when they talk about sex work. I, I'm not pale. I'm not thin. <laughs> I'm not femme. So, um, and I don't work for, I don't work with any sort of mainstream companies. And that's been a big part of that for me is, um, I used to work for a porn company that did online distribution. So I got to see a bunch, a bunch, a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of porn and none of it looked like me. So mm. that's what got me started in doing the sex work. Amazing. Great. Um, so as you know, this episode is all about body image. Um, what would you say if you had one, um, would be your body positivity breakthrough moment? I don't know if it was necessarily one, but my um, becoming involved with the kink and leather community, um, the acceptance, body acceptance is such an amazing thing. Yes, within the kink and leather community, you know, you want the classic sort of bodies, both male and female. Um, I know that for a lot of cis het dominant males, they want the tiny wayfish, um, very thin, very mousy looking, you know, easily tied up and looks very pretty sort of thing. That happens, yes, but there's also regular sized people in the community. Right. Um, having people, like, so when you're spending time in a dungeon or play parties and stuff, when you start to look around and everybody's in like underwear or naked and no one seems to care, right. it's like, oh. And then not only that, to have people reaffirm that you are a stunning specimen of the human genome um, in all of your glory, it's kind of like, Hmm. Um, I think probably the biggest push uh, towards being comfortable, more comfortable in my own body and my own skin was probably working with Crashpad for the first time. Um, I wanted people to who were looking for, for queer people who were looking for something that was actually erotic, non-fetishizing, um, that showed people of color and size in an actual erotic fashion and not just something really wonky. So the opportunity presented itself and I was like, okay, this is cool. I'm going to have sex on camera with one of my hot lovers. And I'm like, they look much better than me. And I'm like, so it's like, ah, do it. Um, and so I, that was probably my biggest moment. And um, to have that sort of, that's why I started doing it. That's why I continue to do um, porn. In, and then to have, so what I wanted happened. I was at an event, two people come running up to me like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. You're cute. And I'm like, oh my God, you're famous. I, I didn't do it. I don't know what happened. What happened? <laughs> the flailing, yes, this is exactly what happens. I'm like, yes. Like, we went to a queer house party in Brooklyn. It was a basement party and there was porn on the wall and it was you. Oh my God. So this was two POC young people in the leather community who were not the standard model size. And to know that the thing that I did actually worked. Yeah even if it's just only the two of them that ever saw it and thought about it and were like, we fit, we belong, we can be hot too. It's like, wow, that's amazing. Um, so that really helped. Um, the leather community, this just learning to be okay with being <laughs> half naked, a ring and a jock strap and boots in the middle of a dungeon. <laughs> I can't imagine even. You, you, you can do it. I believe in you. So, I mean, it happens and it was it was so much fun to learn to like, because part of that for me was I had to learn to follow the instructions that were given to me. So what I didn't have time to do was worry about what everyone else was thinking. Mm -hmm. I needed to follow the instructions being given to me and that was the important part. So I learned to just follow what I was being told. 
um, and do those sorts of things. And then it becomes such a norm. It normalizes nudity and normalizes uh, different body sizes and things like that. So it was probably one of the best things. And then I started stripping. I don't do boylesque, I strip. Um, in International Miss Leather, which is coming up in a couple of weeks, they have a thing on Sunday, on Thursday night, not Sunday, Sunday, it's like wind down. Thursday night is a thing they call seduction. It's a show that's amazing. Um, people volunteer to perform in the show and it's just kind of raucousy. It's a really lovely way to sort of bring everybody out of, cause this is like one of the, it is probably the largest leather event for women in the world now. Wow. Um, I think there might've been Amsterdam, might've been the first, but um, they don't do their event anymore. So this is something that you've got people coming from all over the country, literally all over the world actually. Um, and trying to kind of, you want to kind of set that tone. So Thursday night seduction is people stripping. There's all kinds of musical just stuff and things. And I decided one year that I was going to strip just because I needed to dare myself to do something. They announced me and like the crowd goes wild. I was like, holy crap, I'm actually going to do this. And I go out and before I can like start to do my number, there's like, Wow, money's being shoved in places. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, okay, all right. There is no routine, just stick out a leg. Yeah, oh right my, my boots. God, yeah. yes. So to be in front of a crowd of people from all over the country, all over the world, um, stripped down to boots, a jock strap, and whatever needs to cover my ass and some pasties and have people like throwing money at you, like making a beeline for the stage. That's amazing. That's Gold. the kind of stuff you see like, Nina Hartley often will sometimes show up to this thing and like to have the same response, like to have the crowd treat Nina, me the same way that they respond to Nina. I'm just like, I'm the shit, yo. Fuck yeah. Yeah, so that kind of, it's it's helped and it's boosted. And I love that I'm in a space now where I can be more comfortable in my body. I still have my own issues, but I feel so much better than I used to. High school was hard for me. I didn't, I it was really just didn't feel right in my body and didn't have any sort of positive reinforcement, any sort of positive role models about being a big kid. So this has been amazing to finally make that sort of connection that it's about the eye of the beholder. It really is. Yes. And there's nothing you can do about that. All you can do is be yourself and be happy in who you are. There's not a whole lot that you can change about someone else's perception. Totally. Wow. I'm so happy that like you've clearly gone on this huge journey and like have found this community that like has really, really done it for you when it comes to the way that you see yourself, which is amazing. Like that is basically all everyone could hope for, right? Is yes. to like find their place in the world and like feel beautiful in their own skin and just yeah. like be themselves. And it, I mean, and then it opens up so much once you become a bit more acclimated to your own body and your fully present in your body. And I really sound like a woo hippie type person and I'm really not, I'm not, I'm just, I, I've moved through life enough. I'm old enough to have learned a few things along the way. And it really, I've gotten to a point in my life where it is about the, the rest of the world isn't, okay, so it was, as crass as this may sound, I used to work at a lesbian bar and when the bouncer was getting ready to close and it was like time to shut it down, bouncer would stand on the pool table and go, if you're not feeding, fucking, or financing a bartender, you need to leave. <laughs> And if you break it down to just those things, if someone's not providing something essential in your life, then it really doesn't matter what they have to say. Yes, you will be affected in some ways. Yes, you will feel some things about it. But at the end of the day, 
it does not matter. It matters how you move through the world. It matters how you see yourself. And that's the most important part of that. Mm -hmm. So finding that gear. And the thing is, it never stops. It's a, I hate growth spurts is what I call them. I hate them. I hate them. I hate them. Um, I've gotten to a point where I'm like, okay, I'm fairly... If I suck in this and I turn this way and I hold the camera this way, yes, the selfie looks great. Ugh. Right. You know, but you get to a point where that you've you've managed to move into your body, feel present, be there, and then you realize there's so much more to who you are mm -hmm. and finding out what you want to do and how you want to move through the world um, and seeing that once you take that giant piece out of like worry, the body image, then you have so much more space to explore, you know, what you want to do, what your passions are, what is eroticism for you, what's mm. erotic, what feels good, because now you're really in your body and you're not enduring, you're not just, you're not so much in that, in your head, you're more really in your body. And that's a very different thing and a very different way to move through the world. Absolutely. So... You identify as a queer, gender-independent person, according to my content editor, <laughs> and you're also a person of color. Um, how do you think your different identities affect your body image and how um, it affects your approach to body positivity? Hmm. Um, yes, gender-independent. I love that term. I stole it from Bear Bergman. What's up, Bear? Uh it's hard to not have things colored through the lens of I'm a person of color. There's no way for me to move through this world and not accept like there are some truths for me that are not true for other friends of mine. Like I can't just roll into a neighborhood in the middle of the night. I am a masculine presenting human. You know, I can't ride at night with my hoodie up. Like I love my hoodies. It's mm. the Bay Area. You need a hoodie. <laughs> it's like, it gets cold. It'll make or break your night if you don't have that hoodie. Um, but I can't ride around in my car with my hood up. Mm. Um, I'm perceived as a black male, and there is a distinct possibility that I could die. Someone can make a mistake. Uh, I could be mistaken as generic black man number five, and before I have a chance to explain to anyone, I could be dead. Mm. So my life, um, I've learned to, while I'm very um, gregarious and flirty and fun, all of that looks at like looks through things as like um how do you do that as a kid of color and not hurt yourself not um run the risk of all the other things and when i look at that in the broader spectrum of like what is um what was seen it what i saw or what was projected as sexuality of a black female when i was younger it was always highly sexualized mm. um and very just like all the bad things it was nothing there was no pretty weddings for the black kid. She was, if there was a black girl in the movie, she was the reason that a, a, a marriage was breaking up, someone was cheating on with, you know, those sorts of things. And so it, whether you know it, notice or not, because I don't think I consciously noticed it, but you see that over and over. You see the black kid does this, the white kid does this. The black kid's got like a big ass and they're in it. They make a big deal about your body and your dimensions in a way that it's different than like the tiny, tiny model human. Mm. So you start to recognize that you're supposed to be over here and be like this, um, that it's not, that you're not necessarily marriage material. You're only going to be like a homewrecker, um, that you're not sexy unless you're super feminine and hypersexualized. Um, so, and none of that fit me. I've been a tomboy forever. Like, 
I remember I was like 11 or 12. My uncle gave me my first baseball cap. I wore that thing like any other boy does mm -hmm. when you get your baseball cap. You wear it to bed, you wear it to the bathtub, you yeah. wear it all the time. Right. My mother hated it. Which, you know, she's a mom. She's got four girls. Right. Be a girl. Right. No. Cross your legs. Wear the dress. She put me in tights and a dress and sent me off to school. I come back and the tights were just tore up. She's like, how uh, do you do that? <laughs> what are you doing? Playing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I, I grew up not thinking that I was pretty enough, number one. Um, messages from, like, my sister and I are a year and a half. I have one of my sisters and I are a year and a half apart. And everyone always said she was prettier, uh, funnier, and all the things. I was a book nerd. I wore glasses. And I, I just sat in my little thing and just didn't, I never thought I had measured up to anything. I was too dark-skinned to date for the most part, unless it was, like, Black History Month. Um, I was not black enough to date because I wasn't ethnocentric enough. So all of that is like, how do I find a spot for me that feels good where I'm not um, bowing to the will of other people? I'm not buying into all the other things that society says. I mean, I can think about that clearly now. At the time, I was just like, why do I not fit in? Why am I getting my ass handed to me every day? Why am I getting beat up all the time? And so that also actually gave me kind of a bubble. I didn't feel the need to follow everyone else as a child. I didn't feel the need to follow them in high school and do things. I was always a little bit, not a loner, but I didn't really care to be in the middle of all the things because I didn't want to be that kind of popular. Um, I knew that I wasn't very comfortable with boys, but I didn't know why at the time. So I didn't want to be seen with some folks because I didn't want that connection to be like, oh, well, if you were this person, then obviously you're going to put out. And I'm like, mm -hmm. ooh, no, mm -hmm. no. All right, so we're kind of running out of time. So I want to say one really pressure-filled thing, which is you have a million people in front of you and you have one opportunity to leave them with something regarding the, the topic of body image. So what would you say, your your last maybe like tip or the piece de resistance, what would you say to a million people who are listening and watching? Um, I remember watching... Uh, at the time, it was Ruffle, Russell Simmons' Deaf Poetry Slam. I'm going somewhere with this. Okay. Uh, I can't remember the name of the poem, but there is a kid who recited a piece. And what one of the one of the chorus was basically um, his grandmother saying, you got food in your, in your belly, you got clothes on your back, you got a roof over, the, over your head. Somebody's got it rougher than you. Mm. No matter how bad you think your body is someone out there thinks that their body is, is 10 times worse and it's not and neither is yours um it's other people's perception um and it's time to take a moment to step back and not look at yourself in the mirror with criticism but look at your body and start to see the things that you love about it look at it and not worry about the stretch marks as lord knows we got them <laughs> um look at the things that your body can do even if you're differently abled so much of what we are and how we move through the world, our bodies carry us that way. We go through, we go to work with people we don't like and don't respect us, but we can do it every day because we can get up and wander and do the things. Think about the good things that you do for yourself. And if you can't think of good things that you do for yourself, I challenge you to start doing things for yourself. You deserve happiness and joy and abundance in your life. You deserve to feel happy, whole, and secure. Um, and don't let anybody take that from you. And whatever way you need to get through your day, that's that's good. You make it through the day. Um, some people don't. So every day that you make it through the day is a fantastic one. So it's gonna be rough. 
um, but stick it out. It's worth it. You're worth it. suburb of Houston, um, like a pretty like working class town, mostly white. This is Caleb Luna. Caleb is a writer, activist, teacher, performer, fat babe, and PhD student at UC Berkeley, where their work broadly explores the intersections of fatness, desire, white supremacy, and colonialism from a queer of color lens. In retrospect, I was like deeply depressed for most of my teenage years. I was like, I'm a fat, brown, queer, you know, femme, um, and it wasn't easy being me in small town Texas. Mm-hmm. And so in retrospect, I'm like, I, I can see how that was was developing. But that also made it hard for me to, like, kind of focus on education and school. So I didn't um, I didn't get accepted to university, like, my first time out, out of high school. Um, I went to community college, but there was, like, so much family stuff and chaos. I dropped out um, a couple of times, actually, and I uh, dropped out of community college for about four years, went back um, for a couple of more years, and then transferred to UT Austin, which was like my dream school. And I've the heard school. great things about that school. I had a really great experience. There. Awesome. Um, and they were the school that like rejected me out of high school. So that was like a nice like triumph. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, when I was living in Austin, I... Um, through like the queer community, I met these other like fat folks. We and we developed a an artist collective centered around um, writing this play called Fat the Play. Um, and, and so there was six initially, and we were all fat queer femme identified. We wrote this play. Um, it was like really stressful because when I went into the situation, I was like, I'm a writer. I'm not a performer. Like I've never like done this kind of stuff I don't want to be in this play but I'll, I'm happy to write for it right um and then whenever I actually saw the play I was like there's no way I can't do this so I just kind <laughs> I of, gotta be in yeah. it it was it was really a wonderful experience um and that experience really helped me um start thinking about like why I what was so scary to me about being on stage as a fat person um and like why I was so resistant to the idea and it brought up a lot of like my own internalized things about like feeling like I wasn't supposed to be seen and I shouldn't be mm. seen. I um, didn't want to be seen. Um, and that is kind of how I got into this aspect of it. I had been, um, I mean, I've been fat all my life. Um, and so when I kind of like stumbled onto fat activism uh, on the internet, that was like super influential for me. Um, and so that's where my fat politic developed. And then through this um, play experience is when I became more interested in performance um, and body image and and all kinds of other things. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. And how about now? So you're a PhD student at Berkeley. Um, what is that like? Congratulations. You're clearly a genius. That's <laughs> amazing. Um, so what are you studying and what's your degree going to be in? Thank you. I am doing a PhD in performance studies at Berkeley. Um, and performance studies is like... Uh, 
kind of ambiguous field because it's so broad and it can be taken in so many different directions. Um, so the field itself encompasses a lot. My pers- my specific interests are around the body and specifically fatness, how fat people perform our bodies, not just like on stage. I'm really interested in like burlesque or fat burlesque, fat queer burlesque, especially as um, a place of desire and disruption and subversion for fatness and sexuality. Um, that's something that I've struggled with a lot over my lifetime. I also am interested in drag. Like I think both of these, something that's interesting to me about both drag and burlesque is that they're both like queer art forms. They also both um, encourage like really flamboyant aesthetics, which I, and I think there's something interesting there whenever fat bodies who, I mean, I, I mentioned before, like I had so much insecurity and like anxiety about like being seen and being visible. And I think fat people are kind of trained to do that. We're trained to hang, to hide our bodies and, you know, like wear long sleeve coats in the summer and, all, you know, and never wear pants and never wear like shirts that show our arms and these kinds of things. So it's really interesting to me whenever fat people take these aesthetics um, and make them really like aesthetically big, right? Mm-hmm. Not just like physically big with their bodies. And I'm, another thing that I'm interested in is is language and the way that we use language and the ways that um, language there, the consequences of language and discourse on bodies. Mm. Um, something like a phrase that's really stuck out to me is be the bigger person. Because the, the implication in that is that being the bigger person is like a value. It's virtuous. Like it's something to strive for. But when you're actually the bigger person in any given space, it's such a different experience. And there's so much like, um, it's just so fraught with tension yes. and objection and all these things. Um, so I'm like, what is this, like, this discursive value of, of heft and size and bigness versus, like, the material realities of what it means to be a big person mm. um, and a fat person? Yeah. Yeah, something I'm interested in right now is the phrase eating ass, right? And what um, the connection there between sex and food and then the implications for fat people um, whenever we sexualize our um, eating practices and whereas fat people are imagined to be like hyper consumers of food mm. and that translation to sex. Okay. So the next question I have here is that you, Id- well, this is a, a statement first. Uh, you identify as a queer person of color. Mm-hmm. Um, and the question part of this is how do you think that your different identities affect your own body image and how you approach body positivity? Um, yeah. I mean, I think from as far as my own body image, it's, um, you know, as a fat person, as a femme, as a person of color, um, these are things that are not really typically, like, valued in queer spaces even. Um, and that has definitely, like, negatively impacted my body image um, when I contrast it with the kind of experiences um, and attention that, that I see the people around me getting, like, specifically, like, the thin folks and the white folks and the thin white folks. Mm-hmm. Um any, but even the way that, like, the thin queer people of color in my life operate in these spaces, um, that's been stressful and frustrating and a point of contention. Um, but I think it also gives me a really interesting perspective that I think is really um, that people respond to because I, I, I exist at not an uncommon subject position by any means, but one that is not, um, there's not a lot of vocal 
it's a position that there isn't a lot of voice given to, a lot of seriousness. Mm. Um, and so it helps being in these, to, to be situated in these multiple um, categories that I think help me see the, the intersections of all of these others. Absolutely. Yeah. And speaking of race, so um, I'm wondering how does race impact um, which bodies are considered desirable and how does being a person of color influence folks' body image, would you say? Well, I think we, I mean, we obviously live in a white supremacist world, right? Correct. <laughs> Let's just put it out there. Um, and like my, my framework is, um, it, it starts with colonization and the, that for me is really when a lot of these systems were um, implemented, not just white supremacy, but like the ways that we understand gender, the ways that we understand sex and sexuality, um, the ways that we understand body sizes, right? Like something that I think is really important and really interesting and related to this is that, you know, the BMI is the thing that we all, or that we're kind of culturally taught to um, measure our bodies against. And the person who developed the BMI, um, like, first of all, wasn't trying to, wasn't even thinking about like fatness or health, um, but was really just trying to get like an average, but, and he like only used white bodies. Mm -hmm. Um, And so whenever Mm -hmm. people of color are judged against this, against the standard that is literally like just for white people, um, it's setting us up for failure. It's setting us up for something that we like literally wasn't built for us. We were never meant to, to live up to and, were never even considered in. Right. Um, and as far as like how it impacts people of color, I think it really depends on their individual experiences. I know like lots of people of color who grew up in really affirming communities of color who didn't, who might deal with like um, structural and interpersonal racism, but who's, who don't have those sorts of um, feelings of, whatever, like low self-esteem or anything that might come with it. Um, I grew up like, again, in Texas and like a pretty rural community, um, mostly white. And so I was, I always felt like outside of the, the, um, desirability of whiteness. Right. I'm trying to remember if I answered all of the questions. You got it. That was good. I think the, the main, like really important part that I just gathered was what you just said about the BMI of Mm -hmm. like, creating these systems that people of color were never able to even participate in. Um, and there's no, there was no chance, like you said, because if only white bodies are being measured and being used for this system, then people of color who have all different sorts of different bodies and different sizes, um, com- different foods, you know, there's all these reasons why people of color may have different bodies um, than white people. Um, and they never had a chance of even fitting in with the structure. Yeah. Like I think about like indigenous populations and, um, from the Americas and I think like specifically like Central American, like indigenous people from like what's now considered Central America are generally like a bit shorter than other folks. Um, right. Whereas like Swedish people are typically like very tall. Six feet tall. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's literally just like the ways that our bodies developed for the parts of the world that we have been in historically. Um, And the BMI specifically is getting a lot of critiques that hasn't like 
by any means trickle down into mainstream, like even health discourse. Mm -hmm. Um, But they have found that like bodily formations of people of color just um, just form differently. And that specifically like people with a lot of DNA from like the African continent um, have have a different bone density. So they're they might be under the BMI, for example, they are being um, categorized into um, overweight, the categories of like overweight or obese or whatever, um, because it's so simplistic. But that's just one example of how right. like that um, it doesn't doesn't translate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This has been so awesome. I'm so happy to have you. And this has been a really, really rich experience. Um, I think I have one more question for you. Cool. Um, and that's, what do you think is the best thing that individuals can do to change their own thinking and begin the path uh, and the journey, which obviously isn't an uphill thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's, an, it's an uphill battle, I would say. Um, and there are definitely times where people get knocked down. But... Um, What's what's the thing that people can do in terms of the way that they think of their bodies to start or continue um, loving themselves? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I think like interrogating where your unhappiness for, with your body is coming from and why um, and like what makes you unhappy about those things can really go a long way because a lot, I think a lot of times it is external factors. And, um, if we can like unpack that and kind of let go of, um, any sort of really any sort of like intense attachment to, to whatever norms we feel like we're feeling or whatever, like whatever things our bodies are doing that we don't want them to do, um, is really, really helpful um and also like thinking about like having a relation you're like being in relationship with your body right and like remembering like when my when I'm yawning that means my body is tired and I need to rest like I can't like um I mean you can but like (laughs) pushing through like isn't maybe isn't good for your body um and and those kinds of things like eating when like Noticing when you're hungry, noticing when you need water, noticing when you need a stretch um, and like thinking about like, how can I take care of my body in whatever way it means to me um, that isn't about like weight loss or like norms or whatever. It's just like, what do I want my body to do for me? And like, is there anything I can do to make that happen mm-hmm. has been really useful for me. Sex Ed with DB is brought to you by O-School, a place to unlearn shame, explore pleasure, and interact with a diverse community of sex-positive folks through daily live streams. Forget sex ed. Our hashtag sexy ed is far more satisfying. Go to www.o.school to learn more. Our creator, host, and producer is me, Danielle Bezalel, aka DB. Our content editor is Katherine Cohen. Our graphic illustrator is Carissa Diaz. Our audio engineer is Katie McMurrin. Our social media lead is Lisa Fireman. And our fundraising coordinator is Carly Yoshida. Music by Joaquin Carud and the artist Buddha. Thank you to our featured voices and our listeners. Tune in next time.